video store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2011 film Jiro Dreams of Sushi. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's video store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Uh, Barrett, uh, what is your history with this film? This is a little bit more recent of a film. This is about uh, 13 years old yeah. at this point. Uh, is this something you saw back in 2011, 2012? Pretty close to it. Um, didn't see it in the theater, but I was aware of it when it came out. So I would have seen it as soon as it was available right afterwards. Uh, do you remember your first impressions of this film? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was I, I loved it because it came out. It, it would have been right before um, my wife and I actually went to Japan. My son was teaching English in Japan at, at, at the time, and uh, we'd been sushi fans for for a long time. And it was great because we we looked at it both as kind of a preview of what we were going to see when we were in Japan, uh, and then you know gave us kind of more details on the making of sushi. I remember the biggest impression it made on my wife was when towards the end when Jiro talks about making. Uh, the pieces of the sushi a little bit smaller for women and because whenever we get sushi it's always this deal where you know i can pop it in my mouth and my wife always has to bite it in half and she's like i have a small mouth you know and i'm like well i don't i think you're being a little bit dainty about it so she was very happy when jiro kind of confirmed <laughs> her view that she needed smaller pieces of sushi so that made a big impression of all things so i also watched this probably probably in 2000 11 maybe um or if not that 2012 because this was a very early netflix streaming doc okay. you, you you can read this in the the contemporary reviews they talk about this and i am not an early adopter of technology except netflix streaming i was on before there was much on there like i remember there being a handful of things but being excited that i could watch things without having to get because we subscribe to the dvds but oh, yeah. if you did that you also had the um the streaming and i remember it was mostly documentaries which i loved so i uh back in 2010 11 um i just watched a ton of documentaries on um on netflix so i assume this was probably in that run of watching whatever uh whatever they posted um what was interesting about this is that i watched this then so i was probably 34 33 34 um around then um and the things that i remembered so i hadn't seen it since i watched it then and if you had asked me what this movie was about i would have said two things i would have said this is about gorgeous photography of sushi like i just i mean i remember like all of those shots and yeah. you know sometimes watching the soy sauce drip off gently from the edge of it and just how amazing it looks which is true uh, and I also would have said this is a movie about Jiro being a brilliant, celebrated, and kind of obsessive artist, which mm -hmm. is also true. That's that the movie is about that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I was drawn to him uh because he would because you there was enough of him talking about his art form, talking about his work. And I'm always excited when you encounter an artist who's willing to talk a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he talks about it, not in like impenetrable ways. He talks mm -hmm. about it in pretty like um, almost simplified ways, right? Like, like his, his, his ethic is, is so much like you just keep doing it. You just keep working and working. And I, and I was, I was drawn to that as like this kind of view of craft mm -hmm, mm -hmm. somehow. I had entirely forgotten about his sons. Oh, okay. Which is funny because this watching, it's like, oh, this is this is a movie about fathers and sons. This is this is loosely a movie about sushi. That's <laughs> I right. mean, it, it's it's very much about that. But it, but it's like 
This is entirely about that. And in fact, the main character of this movie might be uh, might be Yoshikazu. Like mm-hmm. he actually, even though the titular character is Jiro, yes. I was blown away watching this thinking like, this movie's all about him and how interesting of a character he is. Yes, because, you know, we we, we discover, uh, for example, that he's the one that's made the sushi for the Michelin credits, right? So, which I think is, is a really interesting um aspect of Jiro's success because you know sometimes when people are artisans or great craftsmen um they either kind of hold that to themselves because they fear competition or they're or they're incapable of kind of teaching others you know i i remember that when i was um in, in charge of uh, teaching assistants for for cwc and one of the pieces of advice that I got from uh, one of our my, one of my predecessors, Virginia Lettinger, was she said that B plus students often made the best TAs because they are very conscious of how they have to work in order to achieve what they do. Whereas A students, because it comes so easily to them, they may not know how to teach other students to succeed. Right. So you you, you look at Jiro and you think this guy is an A plus student when it comes to sushi, but he has such a sense of the craft and even if he's kind of a sushi genius and he has these ideas that other people don't have he has a basic craftsmanship and and i think a really important thing a respect for the craft so it's like it's not just that you are a craftsman and therefore you are great but because you achieve something in this i would even call it an artistic realm what you do is part of your commitment to the craft to the art not to yourself and so I think that gives him the ability to teach his sons as well. Because so one thing I did not remember, I remember the sons, but I did not remember that by the end, I felt as though the sons had been had been actually pretty well served. Um, you know, the, the younger son that starts his own restaurant and, and, his, and the older son is really kind of making a lot of, of the sushi. So, so to me, what really struck me was this, co- this kind of um, uh, paradox about about Jiro, who seems in some ways so severe, but at the same time is generous in terms of the amount of time and energy he puts into teaching others how to do what he does, uh, maybe as well as he does, almost. Well, and what's interesting is the food writer talks about um, when he's laying out, like, here's the five things that make a great chef, yeah. and he goes through this. Um, one of them he talks about is like is leadership, and he says, you know, Jiro is is a better leader than he is a collaborator, and all of these things, which is fascinating because I wonder if that's a kind of a misread by the food writer, or yeah. or, or, or if it's a cultural understanding of leadership, because you do have this sense, like like <laughs> you see lots of lots of uh, versions of Jiro in this, but like you do get this sense that like. This is a this is such a collective work. This is not a uh, people want to make this an auteur process more than it is a collective process. Mm-hmm. But it like but he, even he says like ninety five percent of the work is done by the time it gets yeah. to me in front of the people. But it, the only thing that ever shows up on TV is me yeah. ma- actually making the making the thing you eat and and people. Um, undersell what the other people do they think they just like they think they just bring out a tray of fish it's like no all the work went into that fish that's brought out and i do this final step yeah and so i i i i agree i think in some ways the critic has kind of misunderstood what what jiro is doing at the same time uh Jiro is happy to tell the camera that, but that's not exactly the image that he exudes, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do think that he still thinks of himself as kind of the face of the restaurant. And even if 
even if others achieve what they do because of, of uh, working with him, I still think he wants to see himself or does see himself as as the one who really is still kind of setting the pace and calling the shots. And maybe that's what being leader uh, consists of. Well, and what's interesting is the comment I just I just made, he follows up by saying, of course, I taught them everything. Yes. They're only doing what I taught them. So he's like, yes, it's this. But at the same time, let's not let, let's not let's not forget too much about what I'm doing, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you, you don't see evidence that Jiro is a collaborator in the sense that anybody says to him, hey, hey, master, let's let's make this sushi. It, right. you, don't, you don't see that happening. Yeah, Um, I. It's interesting as I was working on this um, kind of preparing for today, I, you know, I usually just will sit on on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday and just kind of write up questions or thoughts. And uh, I wrote five pages about about Jiro being a bad father. <laughs> and and it, but and it's funny because it's like I want to get into that stuff, but I'm glad we didn't start there because it's like that's not this movie either it's like the undertones and it's not that he's a bad father there are questions about this and Jiro even questions um I don't think it's interesting the word regrets comes up in this movie from his um uh one of his apprentices who has left and is now a a sushi chef of his own um and you know he says if Jiro has no regrets you know it has regrets he shouldn't um but there is there is like these little feelings of like well does how does he feel about himself as a father? Because he he openly says, you know, like I probably wasn't the best father, especially when they were little. He tells the story about like, you know, the the children thinking a stranger was asleep in the house Shit. because, <laughs> you know, um, and and I find that stuff really interesting. And you know, part of it is generational. Part of it is, I assume, is is cultural, um, in terms of kind of the expectations of fathers and sons and the expectations of firstborns and things like that. So. What I love about this movie is you get this balance of like I I find Jiro to be delightful and interesting, and if 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 also stern and obsessive in all these ways. Um, there there's plenty of films about chefs who you sort of look like look at and you're like, well, they make great food, but they seem like awful people. This is not <laughs> that. At the same time, like I my heart goes out to to his sons and especially his oldest son where it's just like there's some things that Jiro says in this movie that almost seem haunting when you think about his oldest son. Well, you know, I mean, I think one of the ways I think about about him as a father is look at the fathering that he had to overcome or the lack of fathering. So, if you compare him to his own father who abandoned the family um and evidently descended into alcoholism and you know, never got back in contact with the family. When you compare him with that father and you look at his diligence and, you know, that's often, as you know, that's often the irony of the, of the, of the hardworking father, right? Spending so much time supporting the family by working hard that he becomes kind of a ghost in his own, in his own family. But, but if you think about the ethic that Jiro lives by, um, he's really done the best he can for his kids right so you have the the second son who starts his own restaurant because as you 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 alluded to japanese tradition right because it's the the first son has to follow in the footsteps of the father so the first son really has no choice but to stay in the restaurant made me think a little bit about prince charles waiting all those years for queen elizabeth uh to to die and becoming an old man himself right because the first son's in it almost in his 60s at this at this point so yeah Barrett, I, I'm so glad you brought up Prince Charles because uh, I want to get back to the other things you're talking about, but 
this is a moment to say this. I also thought a lot about this movie oddly, and I don't know anything about David uh, David Gelb, um, but oddly as like such a Gen X movie, especially like aging Gen Xers who are, I mean, look at the presidential race we have. We have yep. like, now we have a 77 and an 81 year old person from the baby boomer generation still running. Yes. And there arguably has been one or zero Gen X presidents. And I'm like, oh, this like, I, I my, my my generation resonates with this of like yeah this, <laughs> there is this sense of like okay when is that when is that older generation going to uh hand this hand this off right because mm-hmm. because the the whole thing about succeeding your father feels like a blessing and a curse in this movie you know yeah. because the younger son actually gets to go and do his own thing Yes, and, and and they have that little thing with the oldest son, Yasha Kazu. You know, he talks a little bit about wanting to be a pilot, and he, his eyes aren't good enough, and wanting to be a race car driver, and you need a lot of money to be a race car driver. I mean, I mean, it's it's an interesting moment in the film because it's almost like they're saying, you know, he's saying, I I I wish I could have done this, but the fact is, those are pipe dreams. I really couldn't do that, and and he doesn't seem unhappy in his role and what i found interesting was trying i was trying to figure out um you know exactly what is his role because at the beginning all you see him doing is is preparing the seaweed and it's like oh that that looks like a pretty menial task that's all he gets to do and then you discover by the end i mean i think there's a way in which you could look at this film as being about kind of building up a portrait of him right Mm -hmm. and then you discover by the end he's actually as great a sushi maker as his dad and so then I go back to this theme of, you know, is he a good or a bad father? I have to say, well, you know, he kind of blesses the younger son to go off and start his own restaurant. Um, the older son is, I mean, I, I don't get a sense of resentment that he's playing this role. I think he just feels like this is part of what you do. So I kind of feel by the end, he's actually, you know, he's actually done, done pretty well by his son. It's a, it, it, at the same time, it is a charitable reading of blessing his son to go, his younger son to go off. Because what I find interesting is you're right to say, like, okay, he has, um, uh, he has overcome the the parenting that he had. Mm. But I also feel like he's learned some some uh, harsh, harsh lessons, or he's applying them. You know, because when he talks about his, I mean, it depends on how much you take him at face value when he says, like, I told him, you know, I, I push, I gave him the, he says, gentle push, you know, out of the nest to go do this. But I also told him, you can't come back. Like, like, like <laughs> failure is not an option. And then right. he says, parents who don't do that, who say, you know, if this doesn't work out, you can come back. It's like, they're doing, he basically says, like, they're doing the worst thing you can do as a parent. And part of me's like, I I don't know. And and if you make the argument, well, look at how those sons turned out. Mm. That's a little bit of ends justifying the means saying like, yep. well, <laughs> uh, it's that's great if you are a genius su- sushi chef, but like <laughs> nobody else should learn parenting from Jiro. I like I and again, <laughs> I, I don't mean this as a criticism. I mean this as like this is what's so interesting about this is it's like oh, like like in this situation, like, like it seems like all of those things worked out, but you take a step back and say, but does that, so does that mean it's okay? Cause I do think about him saying things like mm. I let them, I let them finish high school, you yeah. know, you know, so, so that, that verb is interesting. I let them finish high school. They wanted to go to college, but I convinced them to come and work in my restaurant. So it's like, <laughs> well, that turned out well, but that also like 
you can see the 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 ghosts of other dreams there that aren't being an F1 racer. You know, it's like, I wanted to go to college. Like, I want to go to college. I want to do, it's like, nope, this is what, you know, regardless, or depending on how he got them to, you know, convince them to work, like they were pulled into his orbit in this kind of way. Now he is a, you know, uh, I, I can imagine in his own kind of way, a very, you know, powerful, charismatic person, even though you don't maybe think of charisma, you know, like not in a traditional way, like I could see how he could convince you into that. But like, like I really do think it's an interesting mixed bag. No, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a very good point, Sam. I mean, and of course, you know, that's something that, I mean, in, in a lot of cultures, right. I mean, in, uh, you know, I mean, for hundreds of years in Western culture, that's always been the assumption that, that, that sons, simply follow in their in their father's footsteps. But at the same time, I agree, there's a sense in which, um, there's a sense in which the kids are, his his, his boys are, um, are pieces of sushi, and he's going to kind of shape them the way that, uh, that that he wants to. And yes, you're right, it's a it's a good thing that it worked out. What, what would have happened though, if they hadn't really taken to it the way he takes to it? But at the same time, this suggests to me that Making great sushi is both an art, and, and I think sometimes when we think about art, we think about it in kind of a romantic way. So, I, like, you have to have some kind of a special uh, God-given gift or wherever you think those things come from. But it's also a craft, and people can learn crafts. You know, you and you can be a good or a better craftsman to various extents. But but a craft is 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 in a sense different from art. So so to me, I think the art part of what Sushi does, uh, what Jiro does, is whatever it is that he dreams. I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't tell you a lot about. It. I mean, that that was one element of the documentary. I wish there'd been a little bit more of a little bit more of how the way the thing he he does with Sushi are kind of unique and unexpected I, I i wish there had been a little more of that but but so yeah so that to me is kind of his art part but the artisan the craft part is really what he's able to impart to people i mean that's why it takes 10 years of apprenticeship supposedly i mean you you, you wonder if it really takes 10 years that's just how long jiro wants to hang on to them but anyway but and, and he really has you know taught them uh this this craft and the word that is used of him a couple times the japanese word um shokunin um which is usually defined as craftsman or, or artisan uh it also implies both technical skills but kind of a social obligation to work to your best for the general welfare of the people. And so I think that's that's why I'm giving him a little bit of a pass uh, in terms of how he treats the sons, because I think he does he does believe he, he that he's fulfilling a, a, almost a spiritual obligation to them and to the craft. Well, and I, I love that you brought up this this question of like like art and, and craft or, you know, because um, this, I think, is another interesting theme in, in this um, uh, in this movie. Because the another word they talk about, which is some which ties into the the space between art and craft, both uh, Yoshikazu and um, Anjiro himself talk about talent. Mm. That they say like the the word because there there's a, a a part in the in the film where um, it's actually pretty early on where um, let me find this this quote in my notes where uh, Yoshikazu is talking about this. Um, and he's saying, like, you know, if you come and you work hard, um, you'll become skilled, right? If you if you take this seriously and work hard, you become skilled. 
Um, but if you want to make your mark in the world, you have to have talent. The rest is how hard you work. I love how circular that is. It's like work yes. hard, but then <laughs> yeah. you also have to have talent. Hard work isn't enough. Right. But then if you have talent, then work hard again. You work hard, yes. And, right. and you'll get there. And Jiro, this is, there's a part later where Jiro is talking about the palate and the sense of like taste and smell. And he's even, and he talks about uh, Joel Robichon. And he says like, if I had his yes. sense of taste and smell, I could make something even better. So there is also this sense of like, there is this hard work. There is this, you go every day and you do the same thing over and over and over. But then there's also maybe this like, hardwired ceiling of like but you also have to have this so it's almost like he's saying to the viewer like don't just think well you could just do this it's like yes you could do this but there are people who are special too who have this thing and Jiro's like I have it there are people who have it more than I have and you know and and clearly uh clearly his sons have it right yeah he he, he talks at one point about trying to get to the top but no one knows where the top is, mm-hmm. right? And that's and 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 ultimately that's what makes him um, a, a great artist because he's never he's never fully satisfied. Um, but of course, that can become a kind of a curse, especially if that's what you pass on to your sons—the idea that you can never be satisfied with what you do. So there's a sense in which he's he's both he's both a person fully um, fulfilled by what he does, but at the same time, part of being fulfilled is the sense of um, needing to continually strive to 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 be better, to to do better. Mm-hmm. I also love. I mean, the the opening of this movie is is Jiro saying, you know, the, the key, the, his first key to success in anything is like you have to love what you do. Yes, like it's like 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 if you're at war with what you do, like that, like this isn't going to happen. So whether you intrinsically love it or you make yourself love it, which is maybe you could think about like the sons there, like, well, maybe he, he taught them how to love it or something like that, you know, but like, but, but that that becomes the key because it is about this, this repetition. Now, the thing that's interesting to me too, is I had the same thought you had of like, people are telling us that Jiro is this like innovative person, right? Even the title Jiro dreams of sushi, that he dreams up these new ideas at the same time, the movie doesn't feel like it's about new ideas. It feels like the theme is come and do the same thing every day. And like you will work towards perfection, which is a different way of thinking about art than like taking these big swings at wild new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that I also really love that the, the, the notion of like maybe innovation for Jiro also comes through this very slow process of of seeking to attain a kind of platonic perfection right to say like like you could because you could all you can it, it can always be better what you're doing can always be better and what you just have to keep doing is doing it and and working on perfecting it and maybe in that process you come to discover new things not by like taking big swings and big risks but by doing that at the same time we do get to hear about one innovation Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's one of my favorite like moments in the movie is when it's towards the end when the food writer starts to talk about uh, Jiro's tasting course that he put together about ten years. Oh prior. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know, this this is the thing that this is one of the things that Jiro does that nobody else does, which is like he rethought the way you sequence 
the pieces <laughs> of sushi and he and and he makes this metaphor to music which is helpful because one of the problems with this movie is that a limitation of cinema is taste where you're like i can't i can't experience the taste which seems like a really important part of this uh what this film is about but i actually think that music metaphor is helpful because it at least gives you an in to thinking about like well, what is what is he doing over the course of this uh, over the course of this meal? That's actually a really good point, Sam. You know, my my wife and I we watch a lot of we watch a lot of cooking shows, and uh, and I just and sometimes it strikes me in the middle of watching these that there's a bizarreness about me watching somebody eat something and then turn to the camera and say, "Yum, yum, that's really good," and try to explain why it's good. So you're right; it's really helpful to have the experience of eating the, his meal uh, rendered to us. Um, it, it kind of both structurally, but also there's a way in which you could argue the music does become a kind of an analog for what each course kind of feels like or or or, or tastes like. So you're right; that that was very helpful. The other thing I want to say though is that this is also a movie that is about any it's about any craft or any art so yes it's about sushi yes it has those beautiful shots of, of the food and you know that the, they look gorgeous and 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 uh, but at the same time so much of it is about how do you de de dedicate yourself to the craft as we were discussing you know what is your responsibility to other people what is your responsibility to the people who work for you what's your responsibility to to the artistry so to me you know insert anything you want here put any any artist in here and say this is what really makes an artist great it's kind of like back to that old thomas edison idea that genius is you know one percent inspiration and 99 perspiration and so you know one thing you get out of this film is my gosh what a work ethic i mean the man mm -hmm. is 85 years old and he's hardly slowed down at all you know well, and I did a little bit of follow up. He's now ninety eight years 98. old and still you know, doing it, and and so so uh, Yoshikazu is now sixty three and is still the <laughs> top apprentice to his father. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I, I meant to ask my son, who who reads and speaks Japanese. I meant to ask him to do some follow up on the in the Japanese news sources, but I forgot. I didn't get around to that. So yeah, and it's so the restaurant is still operational. It does. It no longer has three Michelin stars. Not because of quality but because it became this private thing that is no longer like open to the public so yeah. therefore therefore they don't have those stars although his other uh his other son uh takashi has uh i think two michelin stars, two, in his two stars yeah which is pretty yeah. impressive so yeah i would say two stars, I would say two stars. <laughs> yeah what's interesting about this movie to, to your point you know thinking about um other movies about kind of um genius appearing in a family i was thinking about like this is a story that there's lot. I mean, there's lots of stories that are versions of this. Um, but I was trying to think of a version where the, where the the genius in the family is the father. Because mm. um, I can think of. I mean, there's plenty of where where you have a child who sort of appears in the family with a particular gift, uh, searching for Bobby Fisher or something like that. Right, where yeah. it's like parents thinking about that. You you can think of siblings where it's like a sibling who had where where the the main character is the other sibling viewing the one maybe something like a river runs through it right you have a sibling who's looking at kind of the genius of another sibling and their struggle with that you think of a, a movies with spouses movies with rivals like Amadeus right somebody but I was trying to think like can you think of another story whether it's um whether it's a, a documentary or a, a, a more narrative feature, like where it's the father viewed from the children's perspective. Cause I do think this movie 
it is sort of is a lot about like looking at Jiro as a father figure in a broad sense. You know, you have all the people in the kitchen who look to him in that way. You have people in sort of the sushi culture who look to him that way. You have his sons who look to him that way. And I was trying to think of like another version of a story where, where the, the, the genius in the family is the, is the father. And you're kind of reckoning with, um, I mean, I find it heartbreaking when they talk, uh, I think it's both, both the food writer and the, the former apprentice who talk about like for both of Jiro's sons, like, doing the exact same quality work that Jiro does will still make them inferior that they basically need to do twice as twice as they need to improve what he did by twice in order to be seen as his equal. And it's like, wow, the burdens of that are really interesting. Yeah, no, that's a good question, Sam. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming up with anything right now. I mean, there is a, there is a, um, a kind of an offbeat documentary about Orson Welles called The Eyes of Orson Welles, which is about Welles as a visual artist. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of it is conversations with his daughter Beatrice and showing off various paintings and sketches that Welles made. But I don't think that really qualifies for what you're talking about because, I mean, Welles did not make his reputation as a, as a genius with a brush or a, or a pen. And it's much more of an uh, appreciation of artists uh, of Orson Welles. So, yeah, I, I can't think of a can't they have a good one right now? Maybe, maybe it's my- an interesting structure, though. I kind of want to see somebody like tell a story like that. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great little film. It's uh, I, I think, I think it's on Criterion. I can't remember where I saw it, but yeah, it's a great film. Um, one of the other things that I find interesting about this, and this talks a little bit about kind of the production process for a, um, for a documentary, is you know, especially something like this. Gelb doesn't go into this with the sense of like, well, I know what the story is. Now I just need to get the interviews to build it. it this, this, uh, a lot of this gets found in the process of, of creating this. I have a friend who's a documentary filmmaker. And even when you know the story, the like arc or structure of the story, the shape of the story is often discovered as you're interviewing people and you realize, oh, there's another angle here. Or in the edit, you realize like, okay, we keep, we can build this around this relationship or we can build it around this relationship and which makes a better story. So what I find interesting about that is that you sometimes can almost feel the ghosts of other versions of this documentary in the documentary itself. You're like, Oh, this part feels like they were thinking about maybe making a documentary about this. That was going to go in this direction. I feel like this movie has some of those like ghosts of other Jiro documentaries kind of built into it. And I think if you look at, some of the big themes in this you can see, or some of the, maybe not the the smaller themes in this, you can see some of those, um, some of those other things. In fact, Gelb was not planning on making a documentary about, um, about Jiro. He was wanted to make something called Planet Sushi, which was just going to be about sushi culture in Japan. And then he mm-hmm. finds Jiro and is like, it feels like gravitationally just pulled into his orbit. And it's like, well, actually this is, this is the only thing I want to make a movie about. Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting image, the kind of the ghost of the other film or what was it? I mean, you think about, you know, there's quite a bit towards the end or the middle part. There's quite a bit of uh, footage in in the uh, in the fish market. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, and, and there's there's even I love these, these kind of little um, side, these, these little side trips into the fact that even the fish mongers themselves are kind of art artists in, in their in their in their own field. Like the you know the one guy, he's not going to buy just any old tuna. He's going to get really the best tuna. So I so I love the idea that it's kind of like it's kind of like artisans all the way down. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, and and then you also get that there's this little piece that, again, is it's integrated, but you can maybe see that it was part of a larger project where he wants to talk about kind of sushi and and fisheries conservation, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jiro talks about the various kinds of sushi he can no longer make because he can't get the fish or the clams anymore. And he has those great images. If you see this piece of sushi and then it just it just disappears um, because you can't get there. I, I looked up, see what they were, saltwater eels, and two different kinds of clam, including one called a blood clam. Uh, and then he talks about, you know, there should be stricter limits on fishing. We should need to balance our profits with preserving natural resources. I think it's Ashikazu that's saying this. So it's like that's in there and it, it feels a little tacked on. Um, but it's obviously, I mean, it made me sit back and feel guilty about ordering sushi. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as I love sushi, I felt, oh, maybe I shouldn't be eating sushi after all. Maybe, and, and and now when I see these places that have, you know, like all the sushi you can eat and the sushi on conveyor belts, it kind of makes you feel like, eh, I'm not sure that's really what we ought to be doing. <laughs> yeah, no, I had, the, I had the exact same thought. Like, I felt like, oh, this this feels like a segment from Planet Sushi. It's like this, yeah, yeah. like, of course, we're going to talk about this because this, this sort of affects this industry. I loved the whole journey to the fish market, yeah. you know, in part because there, there, there's all these little indicators in the movie of that, that is sort of telling you like, oh, this is Jiro's story, but this is also, I mean, this is also really Yoshikazu's story because he's the one who goes to the fish market. So you get his take on it, but it's also, like you said, the story of um, this little world of experts and they, mm-hmm. and they've all found each other. Right. I mean, like, like you'll talk about the, the, the guy who sells the, the shrimp, is like, oh, I will look around and see certain shrimp and say, well, that's that's a Giro shrimp. Like that one can only be sold to him. And there is this kind of deep mutual respect, you know, where where they respect what what Giro is and what he does, but that that respect come, goes the other direction. I mean, you hear you hear Yoshikazu saying like, you know, this this person is is we know sushi. This person knows tuna, and you mm. go with that guy into the tuna market, and even then. Yoshikazu disappears because he doesn't go with him to the it's like the 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 filmmakers go to the the tuna auction I assume is what that was yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah and and you get you get like a seven minute segment of you know him in- inspecting tuna and talking about what you look for in a tuna and you hear it's interesting because earlier you heard Jiro talk about tuna and the different types of tuna and what's important and what you look for and then you see this other thing like well here's the here's the other step of this process and this guy is as exacting as Jiro is he is that way about purchasing tuna and finding tuna and things like that i mean and it's really important as you get back to the kind of um this what you might call the autorist criticism of the of the artist and that is that yeah Jiro cannot make anything without this without the supplies Right, he 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 he's not fishing for his own. He's not gr- fishing for his own his own sources. So there's a sense in which this this is this is collaboration written really large, you know. And, and even the fact that he doesn't go to the fish market anymore, so he's not even picking his fish anymore. He's leaving that up to Yoshikazu. And um, and and if and if the vendors didn't have the high quality fish and and shrimp and all that stuff to offer him, he wouldn't be able to make the stuff he's making. So it's almost like, yeah, he's a painter, but 
somebody's making the oils or the acrylics that he's painting with. Otherwise, he couldn't he couldn't do it. So this whole notion of the artist is kind of this. Um, you know, self-contained creative force, I think is, you know, completely blown apart by all, all that, all the details of the fish market. Well, and, and, and the, the other, the other guy along this lines is the rice vendor. I very much enjoyed the oh, rice yeah. vendor, you know, because he's, uh, I love Gerald's comment of like, this person knows more about rice than anybody. In fact, he knows so much that I sometimes think he's making it up. <laughs> Cause like, how could anybody know this much about rice? But then Jiro's like, but it's actually, this is, this is the key to what we do because, you know, I love it. He's talking about like, it is the, this rice of such a making quality that other people want it, but I can't sell it to them. Not because I want to be exclusive to Jiro, but because they wouldn't know what to do with it. And then you see them go through the process and Jiro's explaining like, here's what we have to do to make this rice. And here's what this rice needs to do. But if you think about every piece of sushi there, like rice is the, is the, like the bedrock of that. Um, So, so, you know, you think like uh, at first you think, Oh, this is this movie about this guy who, you would walk by this restaurant and not think anything of it because it's just this like 10 seat walk up kind of thing. But in fact, this is the greatest, maybe the greatest person in the world at doing this one thing, but he's surrounded by what is to his mind, the greatest people in the world of doing these other things. And you just realize like, I wonder what's behind the rice vendor. Like, are there other people who are the greatest in the world at what they do? To, you know, it's like, it's, it's, I love that whole, that whole sense of like, kind of that you get this like genius among us feel of like who who are all the other people around us who have this specific thing yes. um another part of this movie that i think is a uh i don't know if it's it, it's it, it's definitely probably not a ghost of planet sushi but it might be a ghost of like another attempt to try to dig into jiro is we get this fairly long segment of him going back to visit his childhood friends mm-hmm. which is a very a very like odd thing but it does it does serve to like flesh him out in a different way we definitely see him differently than we see him in his restaurant differently than we see him with his um apprentices than we see him with his sons even like you get this this is like the one attempt to try to like go back and say like well well like is what is the, what is the larger picture of his life? Because one of the reviews I loved of this movie was Ebert's review. Because yeah. I feel like Ebert cut to the core of this movie and also talks about like, isn't it interesting that Jiro has children, so therefore Jiro has a wife. Yeah. <laughs> but but you not only do you not see her, she is only glancingly mentioned and maybe appears in a photo or two that flashes by really quick. But it's like there are aspects of his life that we don't get access to but like wouldn't you love a, a unguarded moment with jiro's wife <laughs> well you know what, what yeah well one of the comments i made sam was to myself was that there are no women in this film mm-hmm. i mean Until, are, except for okay, they, they, at the very end there's the women who are eating the sushi right but you know even when he talks about his past it, it focuses so much on his father you know, I mean, he he mentions his mother, but, you know, all you hear about is the father leaving the family and he comes to his the grave at the end and he says, I don't know why I even bother. You know, he never got in touch with me. So there, there's so the, so there's almost no mother. There's no literal mention of, of his wife. The whole world. I mean, I don't I don't don't remember seeing any vendors in the fish market that were women. 
Um, I mean, it's it's just an entirely, almost suffocatingly masculine world. Um, now, there were women in that reunion. There were women that he had gone to school with. That that's true. One of the things I found really striking about that about that visit to his past is you're right. It rounded him out, but specifically, they talked about him being a, a really um, kind of rebellious kid. Right, uh, maybe even a bully. That was part of the conversation, mm-hmm. and 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 this seems to me to be a completely ironic thing for somebody like G. Rowe to say. He says, "Always doing what you're told doesn't mean that you will succeed in life," and he, that's not the lesson he's teaching his children. Right? He's, I mean, he's teaching his sons. You got to do what you're what you're told if you want to succeed in life. But that's not how he succeeded. All right? He he would argue that he, the fact that he was a rebellious kid and the fact that he does these really unique uh, things with sushi that's been his success. And yet, you could argue. I'm going to argue against myself for a minute, right? You could argue that he's actually kind of restraining, controlling his his sons in a way that is not going to lead them to be successful because that's not the way he's been successful. But like so many people who have been, you know, who, who, who have behaved one way, they kind of, right, they compensate, right? I, since I was a rebel, I'm going to compensate by making sure my kids are not rebels. But I do think that the, that segment of the film does introduce a kind of complexity to his character so that you see that his discipline is not natural it, it's not it doesn't come to him naturally it is, it is a code or an ethic that he has deliberately adopted and that's what he wants to inculcate with his kids well what's interesting too is that whole thing about him thinking about about that is in the context of i was asked to go talk to the children at my former school right so right. it's so it, it is it's not just about you know what he's thinking about with his own children but he's thinking about like how do i give advice to somebody and he's wrestling with what is the advice I'm supposed to say? And what is my story? And, you know, and, and which one is honest? Yeah. Is it honest to say you should do what you're supposed to do? Cause like that will lead to these things. Or is it honest to say my story is not that story. Mm-hmm. And I had to become like, 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 I think that's, I think that's really, really fascinating. And likewise, there is an irony with him standing with his son, uh, uh, Yoshikazu, who seems like the most dutiful son you could ever imagine, mm-hmm. he's standing there at the grave, saying, "Why do I even do this? They didn't care for me at yes. all." So yes. he is, and 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 uh, Yoshikazu says, "You know, you shouldn't say that in front of your ancestors." So it's there is this sense where he's like saying, "I am burning the past. I'm. I don't care about that tradition." But then you have the most dutiful son who is like, I am tied to you and your tradition. Like it's that is such an interesting, interesting moment where you almost wonder, like, I mean, this is not the case. But in that moment, I like I almost wonder, like, is Jiro a little disappointed that Yoshikazu didn't just leave and start his own restaurant? It's like, (laughs) I know I know you're supposed to do this, but like. He's clearly doesn't buy into all of that, at least for himself as he's thinking about his ancestors and his, the generation before him, it is a, it is a fantastic little moment. I know for a fact that the filmmakers, when they were there filming that were just like, I cannot believe we got that little piece of footage (laughs) because that's a gem. In fact, they may have put that whole scene of going back for that reunion in in it. So we could get that moment to be like, think about this. Yeah. That's really interesting. No, I know if you're Yoshikazu, it's like, Oh, come on. I mean, I, I, 
I mean, this isn't at all about tradition. Isn't it all about following your ancestors? Isn't it all about respect for your elders? And you're going to stand here and tell me that doesn't matter? What you know? I mean, yeah, it, it's it's got it's, it's it really is in a, in a an amazing moment. And of course, it is that moment when you see the 85 year old still has the uh, the rebellious 10 year old uh, living inside of him, which also makes you feel something about again the discipline that he must be constantly imposing on himself or maybe he's imposed on himself for so long it has become kind of reflexive but it's not his first nature mm -hmm. absolutely um we've talked about the end of this movie and kind of the reveal that comes um at the end of this movie that the food writer talking about how when the michelin uh i think the three the first three times the michelin um observers come uh that that it's not jiro who makes the sushi but it's yoshikazu which led me to wonder why mm -hmm. is it because mm -hmm. jiro who we've been thinking about as like this person who holds on and holds on and holds on and you feel bad for yoshikazu is this jiro basically saying like like he's the one like is that is that the actual torch passing moment like he can't actually bring himself to retire because i do think this guy would go crazy if he retired like i think yeah. i think it's not safe for him probably to retire <laughs> but is like because we hear that jiro is always in the restaurant he's never not there he's all but like why this moment three times because three times is different than it happened to be the one time like three times why is it that yoshikazu is there you have thoughts on that <laughs> well, I, I, I have a, I have a very ungenerous thought, which is, uh, well, maybe if it didn't get three stars, you could blame Yoshikazu. <laughs> oh, that's see, see, it's funny because I have the generous read. I'm the one who's critical of him as a father, but I'm like, oh, this is this <laughs> this is a, the generous read of like, I'm actually going to show you that that really you are this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah I, I mean, I, I like the generous read, but you know, I have to point out the possibility of the other, the other way of looking at it as well. <laughs> That's a really good point. Um, and then we get to, uh, we get to the end of the movie. And if you had any questions about whether this was Yoshikazu's moment, it's interesting that he gets the last lines of the movie. Yeah, that it's not, it's not Jiro. It's, it's Yoshikazu kind of repeating the other part. You know, if, if the movie starts with, um, Jiro laying out this philosophy about loving what you do and, and needing to like pick the thing you do and love what you do and dedicate yourself to it. You hear kind of an echo of that in Yoshikazu at the end, you know, talking about the, the kind of, again, the need for the, uh, this consistency. And here's where you get that almost haunting line about Yoshikazu and where, where he says, basically it's like, um, he just needs to keep it up for the rest of his life. That's what's most important. He should just keep doing the same thing for the rest of his life, which sounds, <laughs> I mean, that's the last thing that, uh, that Jiro says. And again, it's, it's both his philosophy, but it does also feel like the curse he's giving him is like, well, all you need to do now that you're 63, well, in the point of the movie, he's 50 years old. Now that you're 50 years old, is just keep doing this for the rest of your life. Like, like it, it's, it's, yeah, I, I, but, but yeah. So that so I think with that ending, it's like if I had any wonderings about the centerpiece of this movie, I really feel like it is Yoshikazu. Well, and and, and it you know, and then of course it makes you it makes you think about the idea that um is the is the achievement of the okay, let me but we'll think about it this way. Is the achievement of the artist about what the artist makes, or is it about about who the artist is or who the artist becomes? 
So in other words, because you could say, you know, of all the things to dedicate your life to, making really good fish is maybe not the most significant thing that somebody can do. You know, you, I mean, you could look at this and say, you know, this is a, this, this is a very limited, narrow area of skill that ultimately doesn't make a huge difference to the rest of the world. But then if you say, but maybe being an artist is about the person that you become, about the, the artist that you are, it doesn't really matter whether you're making violins or whether you're uh, making bread or sushi or plowing a field, you know, it's all about doing it with the highest level of skill that you're capable of achieving. So in that sense, it's back to my idea that, you know, it doesn't really, yes, sushi is the putative topic, but as I think our conversation has shown, it really isn't about sushi. It's really about the people that make it and how they develop the craft to do that and what their relationship with each other is. Yeah, uh, and and so we watch this as a film, as a food movie. Um, uh, did this does this movie make you just if we if we take away the overfishing part, which makes you feel guilty about it? Like, how much does this movie just make you want to eat sushi? Oh, it definitely makes me want to eat sushi. I was thinking about it because you know they. I think I tried to do the conversion. I think it's about three hundred dollars for a meal there. Yeah, but but that's about twenty pieces of sushi. So three hundred dollars is like too much but like i feel like well, if you, would you pay 15 for one piece it's like oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely you know so it's like I, I wish i wish there was ways you could get because like that's the that's the thing and it actually works to this movie's advantage is the limitation of like as we're talking about like you you just can't taste it though it's like you can it's like you can walk right up to it but um i love when the the food writer talks about like what michelin three stars means is that that the the quality and, and the experience is so high that it's worth traveling to the country just to just to go to that restaurant and it's like man i feel i feel like kind of convinced i will say i think eat drink man woman made me hungrier like yeah, cuz no, there was so much but there is something about this that just made me uh desire the thing i was looking at so much I have doubts that my palate is sensitive enough to appreciate the sushi. That's that's my oh, fear sure. about paying three hundred dollars. That you know, I mean, I'm not sure that I I'm I'm a, a refined enough eater to say, oh, I can see why this sushi is like uh, absolutely on on the next next level. Um, so I I don't know. I, I have my doubts that I that I deserve the sushi. Oh yeah, no, mine definitely isn't. But I would pay fifteen <laughs> for one piece just to like just to like have that experience. Um. As we're kind of wrapping up, do you have favorite characters? And we've talked about some in this, but do you have do you have characters that stand out to you that you're like, I'm that person really interests me. Well, I I, I think I think it's more the it's the it's the two sons together. I, I I really and the the big laugh in this film for me was when they talk about the can of Coke, right? And and I just it, I just loved seeing the two of them together because otherwise they're kind of they're kind of separate. And 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 of course it's also a great glimpse into their their childhood and the fact that you you understand again why somebody like Jiro has worked so hard because obviously the early days were very uh money was very scarce and so i just i just love the the camaraderie of the two brothers together because for a while you wonder well you know is there a resentment on the part of the ashikazu that his brother's going off with this restaurant but it doesn't seem that way it seems like they're united in their uh in their profession yeah, I also love that. I love when he shows his restaurant is the perfect mirror image of his father's. And I'm oh, like, yes. That, that's so cool. And like the fact that they're right-handed and left-handed and that's their explanation. <laughs> yes. It's like that, that, that's, that's really, because it's also interesting. I mean, you think we talk a lot about mirrors in movies. It's like they've literally created a mirror 
mirror image, you know, for these things. My two favorite characters, I love the food writer uh-huh. um, for a couple reasons. I love when, when the one time we get to like visit the restaurant for a full tasting menu um, and he's the perfect hype man. Like Jiro's just standing there making it and the food writers and Jiro clearly loves it that the food writers like, you know, this guy is the oldest person ever to get Michelin stars. And he's like, you know, here's what he's doing here. And, and he's looking at you more than you're looking like he's he's explaining it. But he also then serves as the guide to this world for us, for those folks eating that meal, but also for us as viewers. Like this movie doesn't make sense without that character to give us like a little bit of like, let me contextualize who this person is and a little bit of the the kind of history about this. So he's the person, if I did go to Jiro's restaurant, like that's the person I want next to me. Cause I want somebody to like explain everything that I'm experiencing. Cause I know they're not going to like, like tell me about this thing that I'm about to eat. Like I, I really liked him. The other character I loved is uh, Mizutami, the former apprentice. There's not yeah. much of him in this, yeah. but be- he's interesting because he's like, the third son who's not really a son so he has perspective mm-hmm. and he's he's the one who introduces like he's like yeah i, I kind of feel bad for uh for uh yoshikazu because he's like 12 years younger than me and he's still there and this guy has because he wasn't a son was able to like be an apprentice for many years basically i assume be what yoshikazu is and then make the leap that yoshikazu can't um, I love that character. He's somebody. I wonder if if he's a little bit of like Planet Sushi Remnant too. Like that would have <laughs> been another like another mm-hmm. person that got talked to. But um, I find that character so fascinating. And another person like I would spend more time. I would want to see more of that interview. I'd love to spend more time with him. I'm afraid, Sam, that Yamamoto, the food critic, um, I, I ended up feeling that he was a bit of a, a of a sucker fan. Sure. Um, and I, so I, I I ended up. I, I maybe distrusting him is going a bit far, but I just felt like it, he seemed unnecessary because I mean he's sitting at the end of the of, of the bar, kind of telling people how much they should appreciate what they're doing, what they're eating, um, and I I just felt like it wasn't it he was helpful early on as a guide, but then by the end I felt like he was kind of flogging um, Jiro, and Jiro doesn't need anybody to flog him. I mean you know. Uh, information is helpful, but anyway, he, he it, it seemed to me like um, I, I was one, I was wondering if he even had to pay for his food. It seemed like maybe he was getting a little bit of uh, that, that somehow there was something going on between him and Jiro that I I didn't I, I didn't trust. So yeah, that could be, but I think if you excise him from this movie, this movie doesn't make sense. No, I, I agree. No, like, I, like, I, no, I absolutely agree. He's necessary to the film. Right. I just started, yeah, yeah. But but if but if I were at that restaurant, like I actually would need some like because I wouldn't I wouldn't appreciate like I would need somebody to point out to me. And again, I, I'm not talking about the people who are there. Me, I would need somebody right. to be like, do you know what this is? It's sort of like in um in Babette's feast, how the general is the only one who knows, like oh, yeah, oh yeah. this is you guys don't realize you're this is the finest wine in the world we're drinking. You oh. don't realize what Kyan Sacrovage is. Like, let yeah. me explain to you this thing. Like, like I feel like he's functioning that way uh, a little bit in that meal. And and that can be a that could be annoying, but it's also like, you know, people who can afford to go to that restaurant, that doesn't mean they understand what they're experiencing. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's true. Um, so so I I, I, he's somebody that I, you know, and we have different feelings about this. I find him a little bit more delightful in part because I feel like I need that guide a little bit more. Mm-hmm. 
Um, anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Well, I just want to go back to Ebert's review and go back to this concept of, um, you know, you can, how do you achieve perfection if you don't, or how do you get to the top, you know, if you don't know what the top is? Ebert says, you realize the tragedy of Jiro Ono's life is that there are not and will never be four stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I, I think that's a great, that's just a great comment. And I believe he gave the movie three stars, right? He did. It's <laughs> true, he did. So I think that's also a joke. <laughs> yes, it's also a yes. joke. <laughs> All right, what do you have for us for next week? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to end our run of food movies with another kind of, if, if this was only partially a food movie, how about one that's almost not a food movie at all, but is a food movie? And that is uh, Luis Bunuel's 1972 Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. We haven't done a Bunuel in a while. Barrett, I'm so excited. You have no idea how many times on amazon or criterion i this i will pull i'll search for boone well and i'll see that title and it's like man i want to watch that movie and then <laughs> and then i'll talk myself out of it so like the purpose of this podcast project is to get me to watch things like to push me over the line to watch something um i'm really interested in boone well really excited this is this is a movie that has been on my list for a long time so i'm i'm very excited for this well it's, it's freshly back on the criterion channel so uh, so there you go and i've been waiting for it to come back to criterion because i've been wanting to watch it i thought well i'll see when criterion uh, is post posted again and there it is fantastic well barrett thank you so much for uh for recommending this film for having this conversation i think it's a really interesting a really interesting film um and i do think you know, diving into the kind of relationships in this movie is interesting, but also look, this is a, this is a great art documentary, a documentary mm-hmm. about art and being an artist. And I think it it is in conversation with other uh, documentaries or, or uh, narrative features about, uh, about art and artists. And I think this, this lives in that canon uh, pretty well. So thank you for recommending this. Thank you for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie in the video story. <laughs>